Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. I'm thrilled and excited to be here with you. We are halfway through a really fun series. I am having so much fun talking to you, Nathan. We always have so much fun talking together, and it feels like he's so hard to pin down. This is a busy boy. Uh, You're a busy girl, too. We both have busy schedules. We do, but believe it or not, you all, it's so much easier for me to talk to scholars and authors and theologians because... We, we meet during the day and Nathan has to be at a dumb job during the day. And so when he and I get together to do a series, it's really, it's just, it's just harder for us to, to get together. And also Nathan and I do tend to tackle big topics that take, I feel like more study than some of the other topics. And when I'm with a theologian or an author or a scholar, I get to ask good questions, but I don't have to be like the smartest one in the room. And so Nathan and I have to both be like the smartest ones in the room here because we're both just trying to figure something out together with you. So, yes. And I'll qualify that by saying I am not a scholar or a theologian. So I don't, I don't want to uh, (laughs) put up a pretense there, but I do like to read a lot of things and I do like to talk to you about the things we read. So we are fellow travelers. That's what we are on this podcast with you. And if you jump into one of my groups, you will see that I'm right here with you. I am. And I, I, I guess this is an unintentional plug for you to join one of my groups. But if you want a community of people that are just traveling together in a faith journey, come jump in and I will be one of your journey women <laughs> because that's what we do. We are really raw and learning and growing and trying to become more and more embodied by love in all of the work that we're doing. And the faith crisis in and of itself is a beautiful kick in the butt to get us to grow. And so anyways, we are your fellow travelers. That's what we are. We don't need to be scholars or theologians. We just get to be fellow travelers, which is the best thing to be because it's because we're your equals, right? So Nathan, when you get us started today on this episode, this part three of the four part series, kind of give a big broad overview of what we have been discussing so far. Sure. In episode one, we sort of talked about in more general terms, temple worship as it applies to spiritual traditions and cultures across the globe and also across time and sort of compared and contrasted some of the similarities, but also some of the differences between the way other religions and spiritual traditions view temples in the way we in the LDS church view temples. And then in the second episode, we started to dive into the history of the temple recommend, uh, some of its origins and how the questions and the, not even the questions, but, but how the view of a recommendation to go to the temple evolved uh, in the church early on. Uh, it was not nearly as stringent and not nearly as well-defined but as time went on, it became uh, a lot more. It became a lot more detailed as to what was expected uh, of a member before they could go to the temple. Okay, so what we're going to be spending this episode talking about is the evolution of the temple recommend interview as it pertains to a heightening emphasis on matters of belief, and then we're going to move over to the very amusing. Well, it's not. amusing, but there are amusing moments about the struggles in trying to pin down the right kind of conduct. Let's, let's go there. Let's go there. So let's start with matters of belief. So believe it or not, well, you will believe this because you've been probably with us thus far on this series. In the early years of the church, it really wasn't as much about belief policing. 
Really, it wasn't. It was more about being a good person. They consistently had a couple of topics that hovered and never seemed to leave, one of which was the interest in and the importance of respecting one's leaders and that of tithing. That has sort of hung on from the very beginning to this day. It might worth be worth having a little conversation about that later on. Uh, but beyond that, believing a certain way was not a criteria for entering into the temple. How fascinating is that, Nathan? Do you have any thoughts on that before I move into some specifics? Well, I think one of the things that you see in church history is that because the church was made up of initially all converts, people brought a lot of different beliefs into the church with them. Yeah. Okay. Unlike the Catholic church, which would have had a very long tradition and, and you could have multi-generational, you know, multi-century generational families in, in, in a Catholic religion or, you know, Islamic religion, things like that. When the church was organized in 1830, officially, everybody came from totally different backgrounds. And, and my understanding is that Joseph was actually okay with that. Joseph yeah. did not try to change people initially into like a, a very specific view of God or, or Jesus Christ. He was um, in some ways a very universalist and was kind of open to different ideas. In fact, he read a lot of other ideas himself. And so I think that's consistent with Joseph's initial view of what this church would be like. We didn't have to be homogenous. Yeah. I, I love what you're saying, and it's actually bringing up in me uh, something that I learned from Greg Prince, who I have just recently interviewed, and I we have set up another series to do together because we enjoyed working together so much, is that he talked about the evolution of the church beginning as a radical faith and becoming a very, very fundamentalist faith that tried to put its finger on and pin down all of theology. And he said that what we as a Latter-day Saint tradition did was sort of in lockstep with what the rest of conservative Christianity was doing in the early 20th century, which is this uh, retrenchment away from sort of an openness and towards uh, a little bit of a literalist, we like a black and white thinking society where we had a specific theology. We knew where we came from, where we're going, what we're doing, and we have all of the answers. And I remember him saying that fundamental, fundamentalism is the cocoon into which we can crawl to manage our anxiety and find certainty, but it's not real life. Right. And so what I suspect is happening here is perhaps what we're seeing in the evolution of the temple recommend is no less and no more than a response to that very movement that was happening in the country, in the United States, and maybe throughout the world in a move towards fundamentalism, which Greg said was the outcome of real biblical scholarship pushing up against our literalist belief of the Bible. Yeah. And the cultures of the day. I mean, a lot of the, again, longstanding traditional religions like the Baptists um, and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, which were up there in the burned out district, uh, burned over, burned district. over district. I always say burned out because yeah. they maybe were burned out. I think they were burned out. Uh, the burned over district uh, in upstate New York. They were very literalist, and and Joseph was really worried about his soul because of all the things that people were literally saying about hell. But that wasn't how our church began. That wasn't how ultimately the original revelations that Joseph received led him to believe God was. And because of all the converts, Joseph had to be 
accepting of a lot of different beliefs. And so I think that's what plays out here in these first couple decades of the Temple Recommend process is that there is kind of this openness to you don't have to believe a specific thing. You need to be a good person, which I can totally understand that. The universal ideas of integrity and love and service and kindness, those transcend all religious faiths. And so those feel appropriate. But a specific set of beliefs was not something that people held. Right. I think that's a fantastic, excellent point, Nathan. Let's just spend a second touching on tithing and respecting your leaders, because I think this is a big, I I mean, I'm actually trying to give a generous interpretation to both of those fixations, right? right? (laughs) Tithing to me feels like an important bottom line for belief, because if you're a young little baby church that's stumbling along like ours was for really the better part of over a hundred years, it was really, it was really mid 20th century where the church moved into its more wealthy stance. And it was kind of a slow roll. And then of course it picked up steam to where we are now, which is a completely uh, grossly wealthy church. Right. Yeah. But, but it wasn't that way for, for a very, very long time. And so I dare say that perhaps uh, the ultimate test of loyalty for a struggling church was, can you pay your tithing? Because if you don't, we can't keep the lights on. Right. Right. Yeah. And and, and not just a, the fact that it's a new church, but it's a new church growing up in a desert right? It can't engage in the normal kind of industry that other societies were that lived out East. It's isolated. And so they had to have some sort of a source of income. They they had huge debts. I mean, we all know the story of Lorenzo Snow and, and the huge debt the church had gotten under. And so it was just a matter of practicality. Like we aren't going to be here in 10 years, if you guys don't pay your tithing faithfully. So yeah, it makes sense that they're just like, okay, we want to be as general as we can, but we got to have a couple things. You got to pay your tithing if you want to be LDS. Right. And I think they kind of, what they did is they took that topic and because they took themselves so very, very seriously about the, you know, the reality of like the one and only true church. I think what they did is they sort of wrapped uh, some spiritual rhetoric around that because it was persuasive and perhaps a little bit manipulative that was, which, you know, basically this idea that like, unless and until you tithe, you don't actually get to heaven, which I think, again, it's a propensity that institutions and churches have to have a, a legitimate need and then to wrap around it languaging that puts the sort of the stamp of, of approval of God on it so that people feel frightened and, uh, you right. know, afraid of, of not complying lest their souls be damned to hell if they don't do that thing. So in other words, it probably started as a very legitimate practicality. And I think in some ways it perhaps went sideways. No, that's exactly right. And and, and this is a really important point. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. The idea of a temple recommend moving from a question to of self-examination, like we want you to think about yourself and moving it to a manipulation which is I need you to do certain things and to help me out. And so this is moving away from, hey, you know, what's your relationship with the 10th commandment of coveting and into I am going to manipulate your behavior to do what I need you to do by holding salvation over your head. That's a big shift. It's a big shift from this is a good person to I have to now alter your behavior. And probably one that happens slowly and insidiously over time, Yeah. which again, I think as cognizant, psychologically maturing human beings, we have to just become aware 
of how these things probably grew and evolved very, very gradually over time, not intending to be insidious and damaging and manipulative, and manipulative but not notwithstanding, perhaps in some ways these things have become that way outside of the awareness of even those that are currently administering the interview. And so again, we have to recognize as constituents that this may be part of what makes our church wounded. Yeah. Right. And, and to be aware, to not be manipulated. Yeah. That that each of these questions, if you take them in the spirit that they could be intended, are opportunities for self-reflection. But do not let fear manipulate you into something that you don't find within your own actual integrity. And recognizing that, once again, these questions I'm hoping you're picking up on were not dropped upon anyone from heaven itself. Right. Right. Like these have be these have evolved and changed according to culture and politics and historical strifes that the church has had and that the country has had and that human beings have had. And and so therefore they really, really need to be looked at as the product of the of the times. Right. And therefore, when we sit for one of these, if we choose to do so, we have to look at them in the spirit that they're intended, which is this is the product of a wounded institution trying to act in the name of God. Sometimes they do, and they do a lovely job. Sometimes they don't, in which case we have to be able to discern for ourselves what I take literally and what I don't take literally. Right. And recognize that in any one of these questions, I can search myself and interpret that question in a way that helps me recognize if I am in good standing, indeed, with my inner divine and with my parents in heaven. Yeah. And the same could be said for the second question that you brought up, which is the question of loyalty. Yeah. Right. I mean, one of the big struggles that the church had was many of Joseph's inner circle and Brigham's inner circles disagreeing with them, leaving the church, and oftentimes turning around and becoming quite antagonistic, enemies of the church, instigating much of the violence against the saints, you know, the, these former friends in the inner circle. So, of course, loyalty became a huge deal. People were like, look, if you're going to be on the inner circle, you got to stay in the inner circle. Can I push back on that a little bit? I mean, I, I'm agreeing with you 100%. And also, I find this painful and unfortunate that some of those who pushed back did so for pretty legitimate reasons. And so the foundation of our wounded little institution is is kind of fragile because some of those who pushed back did so, not, not in every case, right? I'm sure there's a lot of different situations, but I'm thinking about the Kirtland Bank failure for one thing, and I'm thinking about polygamy and polyandry. Right. Right. And so the, the foundation of our need for loyalty, I think, I think stands upon two legs. One of them is the legitimate need for a, a young institution to say, hey, this is hard. We're starting something from scratch. Please support us. I buy that. The second leg of that is lots and lots of woundedness that hurt a lot of people because of the humanity of the founding leader almost evoked from the gate a need for a loyal opposition. No, and I agree. And, and I will clarify just a little bit that when, when I'm talking about people who turned violent on the church, we're talking about people who really and truly instigated mob violence on the saints who had been former members of the church. Okay. 
as to the legitimacy of the reasons why they may have had trouble with the church, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree that that people, President Marx and some of these others that were standing up to polygamy, were absolutely within their rights to do that. But I think where the church struggled with the so-called apostates is when they went and instigated the mobs and brought back violence sure. on the saints. That was not okay. Sure. Okay. It wasn't okay to bring the mobs back with guns and pitchforks and, and to destroy communities and kill people. And so there is a difference between what you call a loyal opposition, right? Which is like, hey, I, I'm all in with you, but I don't agree with everything that's going on. Can we have some dialogues? Can we talk about your behaviors, Joseph? Okay. And instigating mob violence with the intention of killing people, raping people, sure. hurting people. And so to me, that's where I would draw the line on that loyalty. Yeah, I consider myself loyal. And yet I'm very willing to talk about things that I see that hurt people. Well, we are, I think, as loyal to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, actively giving ourselves over to helping this institution than, than we've ever been in our lives. Right. I don't know that it's always interpreted that way, but... <laughs> But we really, really love this church that we are trying to help. And we adore the people. We adore the people that we get the privilege of working with. Our church probably is not unique. We might be having this very exact same experience in the reform work of another church. But the people we have gotten to know, I am profoundly loyal to. So I don't think the, the cause of loyalty is a bad one. But sometimes loyalty looks slightly differently, and loyalty sometimes looks like having the courage to say things that need to be said, lest otherwise too many people are wounded and the institution itself is wounding itself by, by people not saying these things. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Here is a quick update. Due to the growth of this platform, I am now focusing the vast majority of my professional time serving you, my people here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as you progress on your faith expansion journeys. Therefore, beginning August 14th, 2023, all of my Friday Latter-day Struggles podcast episodes are available by subscription for the price of $9.99 a month. Your paying a couple of dollars a week will significantly support my work. All Monday episodes are still free as I want each of you to be aware of the great topics we are covering from week to week here on the Latter-day Struggles podcast. In my show notes at the bottom of each episode, you will find all of the information that you need to subscribe to the Friday episodes and also a Patreon link to become a one-time or a monthly patron for all of you out there who value my work enough to go above and beyond subscribing for this podcast. Your small cumulative contributions are a very significant way that you can support me in our faith journey together. So thank you so much for your support. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's just spend a second. I'm going to uh, stay with, we are working through how the Temple Recommend interview really honed in on matters of belief later on in its history. So if you think about 1985 in the handbook, it is the first time that it added questions that dealt expressly with belief, believe it or not. 1985, that was not very long ago. Yeah. The first um, is, a, I'm, gonna, I'm reading here from Kimball's article, the first is a requirement of faith in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Then in 1996, there was a reframing of this question 
using even stronger language. And this is what the language was. Do you have faith in and a testimony of the members of the Godhead? And asks whether the applicant has a testimony of the atonement of Jesus as his role as Savior and his role as Savior and Redeemer. Interestingly, once again, close quote. These changes reflect actually, again, back to culture. Culture is shaping the church. And therefore, sometimes it's really important to recognize how things um, made their way into the Temple Recommend interview. The 1996 addition to an explicit mention of our belief in Jesus Christ, um, according to this article, um, says this, these changes reflect a strong emphasis on the church uh, in the church on Christ, uh, beginning in the 80s, perhaps as part in part responding to criticism that criticisms that Mormons are not Christian. Of note, uh, if we were to go back in time in 1985, there are uh, requirements added that a, that a candidate have a firm testimony in the restored gospel. Okay, I think this is important to talk about here because what I'm noticing myself is that you could be a believing Christian and really active and happy in the church. But if you, unless you're able to proclaim the tribal beliefs of the Mormon church and the restoration through Joseph Smith, uh, starting in 1985, you were no longer eligible to have a temple recommend unless you were willing and able to, to declare that this is exclusively the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. So I think it is interesting that the, the temple recommend question today doesn't specifically mention Joseph Smith. It just says what, what you said. Do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Going back to the givens ideas in all things new, this question should allow for a larger interpretation of God's work in our day outside the walls of just our church. In All Things New, Terrell and Fiona talk about, and I, and I completely agree with, the idea that the Church of Jesus Christ was never completely lost. It was the woman that went into the wilderness and, and into hiding, and after travail, emerged from the wilderness. Like, it was never lost. It was just kind of hidden out of sight for a while, but that, that the truths of the gospel were never really fully taken from the earth, and that this idea of restoration really extends beyond just the work of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So in other words, is this church part of a restoration that's going on in the world, a, a, an increase in the knowledge of God and the role of Jesus Christ? Yes, I, I do think that. Okay. But is it the only instrument of restoration in our day and age? And I would say no, not at all. I think there are clearly prophets and people who speak uh, from a place of knowledge and mysticism and firsthand experience outside of our church. And so the implication of question three, does it have to be tied directly to Joseph Smith and only the work that Joseph Smith started? I, I don't think so. And, he, and it doesn't say that there, but uh, it's often implied that that's what we have to believe, that this is the only true church, but that's not the question. I think the concern that many of us have as we're evolving and growing is, is this recommend experience more about a way for us to reflect and ponder on our growing relationship with the divine? Or is this a loyalty test towards our commitment to the specifics of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Now, sometimes there might be some crossover, which is great, 
But I, I think that that's what some of us are working through, which is I am evolving and becoming more and more embodied by what I feel like is my divine destiny as a daughter or son of God. And it may or may not align exactly with the things that I'm learning at church. It may cross over, but it may not. But I am in fact growing closer to God. And if I want to have a relationship with the temple, then that is enough. And so again, I think we have to become less literal and more metaphorical and figurative in the way we interpret and we have the relationship with these questions, even if those administering them are not in that same spiritual place. I think we have to show that personal autonomy to recognize that this is really, in fact, between me and God, and you can be a witness of my process, but you are not my judge and you're not my interpreter either. Right. Okay. Let's spend the last few minutes in this episode, Nathan. It looks like we're going to have to jump over to the topics of matters of conduct. We will start that in our fourth and last episode of this podcast series, but I want to close with, this is, this is interesting and so much fun. The questions in matters of belief, if you want to look at how things have swung violently and wildly in the history of the church, all we need to do is look at the topic of plural marriage. Okay. So we have gone from one end of the spectrum to another end of the spectrum. And I'm going to just reference here Kimball's article for just a few moments here. He says this, Belief in plural marriage as a doctrine occupies an anomalous position among the criteria since belief in both the doctrine and the practice was once required. Belief in the doctrine has never been rescinded, but belief in the current practice is now grounds for excommunication. Okay, close quote. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we, we must pause to giggle for just a second there. So, it was once required that you must not practice it necessarily, but it was required that you believe that it was a divine doctrine and practice was essentially required for anybody in leadership Leadership. positions of the church. So you basically were required to not only believe that it was of God, but you needed to support your leaders who were practicing polygamy. And And if you were called to be a leader, you basically were instructed that you had to start practicing. Correct. Then it's important to note that it was never fully rescinded because we know that this practice does go on in, in the next life, according to this theology, but that now, as per the temple recommend, belief in this practice is grounds for excommunication. So if you needed one little bit of evidence to prove that the temple recommend interview swings with the winds of time, this is your, this is your evidence right here. Let me go ahead and continue reading this. Okay, just a little bit more on the specifics of how this shifted and changed. After the manifesto, okay, so the, there's a, two manifestos, just a little history here. Two manifestos took place, both of which were intended to rescind polygamy. This practice was actually, actually began to be reinforced. I believe it was in like the 1930s. So uh, he talks about this, these uh, manifestos. Here's Kimball. He says, after both the manifesto of 1890 and the unsettled transition period leading to the second manifesto of 1904, the orthodox position became that plural marriage had been proper in its time, but that the Lord now commanded cessation cessation? Cessation. Cessation. cessation of the practice. In fact, beginning in 1940, the instructions to bishops spelled out that any church member adopting or advocating plural marriage should not be granted a temple recommend. Okay, so I'm pivoting just a tiny bit, but only just a little tiny bit, because there's another temple recommend question that actually introduces the concept of apostasy, 
And that is where one who participates in apostate behavior is not eligible for a recommended may actually even be eligible for church discipline. Now, this one was a jaw dropper for me. And I don't really know why it was a jaw dropper because I'm actually from Utah and I've been aware of polygamous groups since I was a child. There was a community that lived pretty close to my hometown. But I did not know that if you look back at the history of the temple recommend the addition of participating in or colluding somehow or believing in apostate groups is actually connected to one's connection with ongoing polygamous groups. Okay, so let me read this. He says this, while apostate groups covers a wide spectrum of unorthodoxies, the primary focus since 1940 has been on groups that continue to promote and practice plural marriage while still trying to gain access to the temple. In 1985, the question was changed from affiliation with or sympathy for apostates to affiliation with them or sympathy with their precepts. This phrasing thus focuses more sharply on belief. The implication has always been that bishops should take prompt action to check apostasy, but the first explicit instructions in the handbook occurred in 1940. And beginning in 1976, special attention was directed to interviews with children of apostates, since they may well have been influenced by their parents, although not yet actively involved in their parents' practices. Now, these practices, close quote, these practices are polygamous practices, not other kinds of apostate practices. So I personally think, for me, it's been, it's been kind of enlightening to recognize that we've cast a really wide net over apostate behaviors, but that the origin of the admittance of this question in the Temple Recommend interview has to do with people that continuously practice plural marriage because that is part of the church's origin story. Any thoughts you have on that, hun? Well, it's definitely evolved. I, I don't think that affiliation with polygamous groups is something that we are fighting in our day. I mean, maybe a little bit, but it, it, that doesn't seem to be a hot issue anymore for us. We seem to move past that. Um, but I remember very specifically when President Monson held a, pe a press conference after he became the president of the church, when President Hinckley died and it fell to President Monson, he held this press conference and he was asked uh, specifically, is there room in the church for differing views on LGBTQ issues and LGBTQ members of the church? And he gave a really disjointed answer, but he basically said, yes, of course, unless you're in apostasy, which is basically saying no. Okay. But to him, he had moved the, the, he had moved the hot button topic of the day away from polygamy, which it wasn't anymore to LGBTQ issues that he had been pushed on. And that became his springboard for apostasy. You know, are you, are you sympathetic or supportive of, uh, LGBTQ issues. And so, yeah, it, it just evolves based on what people are worried about. Right. It, it has me thinking about some of the conversations I most recently had specifically, I'm thinking about my, my interview series with Maxine Hanks of the September 6th, where I learned a lot more. I'd already kind of been doing a lot of study myself, but I learned a lot more about the, uh, heightening anxiety around intellectuals, feminists, and gays were kind of the three big, those are the three topics that are the unresolved shadows of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And therefore, 
addressing those issues by those of us who are shadow workers in the church has come to be the way that apostasy is now more in vogue. That it's more fashionable uh, to, to see those of us who are actually trying to heal the church as apostates, whereas beforehand the apostates were those who held on to their beliefs in polygamy, again, in their own mind, as a nod towards the revelations of Joseph Smith to have polygamy in the church. And they kind of thought that letting polygamy go away was a departure from the divine revelation of the founding leader of the church. So very, very, very interesting that these uh, concepts around these words and ideas do shift and change according to the insecurities of, of the institution. And they're very, very historically and culturally informed. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think what we'll do today is we're going to go ahead and close this episode up, but I do want to give you a little bit of forecast of things to come. So in our final episode of this series of evaluating the Temple Recommend interview, we are going to go way deep into questions around the law of chastity. Now, this is such a fascinating topic, and I have a lot to say about that. That's why I'm not going to start it right now, because I think it would be a good, it's going to be another, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts and words about this, because this particular question, talk about meandering, it has wandered in a thousand different directions as the church has tried to put its finger on how to monitor what chastity is. I think part of the reason why this is complicated is because the church itself, not our church, well, our church plus all churches have a really complicated relationship with sexuality anyways. And so that as a foundation makes trying to simply determine and create a question to discern one's you know, in hand quotes, worthiness around chastity is morality. a morality, right? It's it's a big question and one that they have changed and tweaked and morphed multiple, multiple times. And we're going to go really deeply into that and the history of how chastity has been addressed through the Temple Recommend over the period of many, many decades. Then we're going to have a conversation about something that I was completely baffled by. I had no idea is the membership and competing oath-bound organizations has been a really big topic for the better part of the history of our church. And it was part of the Temple Recommend question. Um, if you're around my age or younger, you probably had no idea about this because I had no idea, but that was a really, really big topic. And so we're going to talk about competing oath-bound organizations and societies and why those were such a big deal in the early church and why they uh, got promoted to the status of the Temple Recommend interview. And then we're going to go ahead and close up by talking about, by I'm going to be giving you an overview of what overall has gotten stricter and what overall has gotten more lenient and what overall has changed multiple times just because of its complexity and because it really cannot be summarized in one simple question. And that over the years, this has in fact become more and more specified. We have become more and more literal and we have become more and more detail-oriented around the Temple Recommends. So this has actually gotten harder. They've made it harder on themselves by, by default as they have culturally become more and more specific about the asking of specific questions. So, whew, okay, we're going to close now. It's been such a pleasure to be with you on this really interesting topic and conversation. I hope you are benefiting from this. I hope this is relieving some of your anxiety around uh, taboo topics that, that a lot of people don't have the courage to talk about. We are talking about them, y'all, because we love you and we love 
the, the faith journey and we want to be on this faith journey with you. And we love this church and we want to help this church have a heightened consciousness about its own history and, and about the impact that uh, some of these twists and turns have had on us because we want to be in a safe and healthy connection with the things that matter to us and with the people that matter to us, especially those people in our families who are in a different stage of faith. So if this has been valuable to you, will you please rate and review this podcast? It's really important and meaningful to us that you write those reviews because people in the beginning of their faith crisis experience uh, don't know where to go. They don't know who to talk to, and they don't know if the sources are going to be angry and inflammatory and make things worse, or if they're going to be a source that are going to help them with, with the healing journey. So your ratings and reviews are really, really helpful. Also, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please know that it is incredibly meaningful for me personally, as this is the, the work that I do every day. I'm here for you to help you in your faith expansion journey here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if you want to jump into one of my support and processing groups, I couldn't be more excited to uh, meet you. I want to know as many of you as I possibly can put names with faces because sitting in a quiet, empty room is not nearly as gratifying as working with you every week on your faith expansion experience. So jump onto latterdaystruggles.com and join a group and also see what my other's offerings are as far as webinars and consultations. And I appreciate your love and support on this faith expansion experience. We will talk to you next time for our final episode of this topic of the evaluation of and better understanding the Temple Recommend interview. Thanks you all. We'll see you later. Bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.